This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. New moms in Wisconsin could receive Medicaid coverage for up to a year after giving birth under a proposal in the state legislature. That's compared to just 60 days of coverage that's currently available, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The bill, which is scheduled for a committee hearing this week, has rare bipartisan support. Democratic Governor Tony Evers included the same plan in his state budget proposal, while several Republicans and Democrats in the legislature have signed on. Mothers making up to three times the federal poverty level would be eligible for the extended coverage under the state's Badger Care program. Similar efforts in Wisconsin have stalled in recent years, but Republicans and anti-abortion groups across the country have pushed to expand health care for new mothers in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision overturning the constitutional right to an abortion. The Democratic-backed candidate in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race has raised more than five times as much money as her Republican-backed opponent ahead of next week's election. The Associated Press reports that Liberal Milwaukee County Circuit Judge Janet Protosiewicz raised nearly $12.4 million in the final campaign finance reporting period between February 7th and March 20th. Her conservative opponent, former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly, raised $2.2 million during that same period, according to financial reports filed yesterday. The outcome of this pivotal race will determine the balance of power on the state's high court, which is likely to consider key issues on abortion, legislative redistricting, union rights, and election laws in upcoming sessions. DNA from a half-eaten burrito has led to an arrest in the firebombing of a prominent anti-abortion group's office in Madison last year. Law enforcement officials took a 29-year-old Madison resident into custody at Boston Logan Airport earlier today, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The criminal complaint alleges this resident set fire to the headquarters of Wisconsin Family Action last May following the leaked U.S. Supreme Court opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson that would end federal federal abortion protections, throwing Molotov cocktails at the building and spray-painting graffiti on its wall. Investigators say additional graffiti incidents, security camera footage, and DNA recovered from a burrito that the accused man discarded led to the arrest. If found guilty, he could face a minimum sentence of five years in prison. The Madison City Clerk says more than 19,000 absentee ballots for next week's election have been returned as of this morning. That's out of a total of about 32,500 absentee ballots that were issued according to a Twitter post from the clerk's office. The city has also so far reported 7,300 people voting early in person. There are just over 190,000 registered voters in the city ahead of the April 4th election. Madison residents can find information about their polling places at cityofmadison.com. And now on to today's top stories. After years of debate over funding, another estimated price tag for a new Dane County jail has been released, coming in at a grand total of $179 million. A new proposal could close an existing budget gap to fully fund the jail project. WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout has the details. County Executive Joe Parisi announced yesterday that the final expected cost to build a new Dane County Jail is around $179 million. That comes as the Dane County Jail continues to send jail residents to other county jails across the state, which is expected to cost the county around $1.3 million this year. 
The current jail, primarily located above the city-county building in downtown Madison, was first built in 1953 and contains no medical or mental health beds. Current conditions in the jail are such that Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett has called it inhumane, unsafe, and borderline unconstitutional. Meanwhile, the cost of building a new jail has risen with inflation. Facing climbing numbers, the Dane County Board has held off on finalizing plans until consultants could provide an updated estimate. Now that estimate is in. While most of the funding has already been approved, the county board is about $13 million short. And they've been reluctant to approve more borrowing to complete the project. But a new resolution could allow the jail project to continue without having to authorize more borrowing. Here's Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett. Resolution 287 was able to obtain additional funds that were unused in other projects, which can now be reallocated and put towards this project without borrowing additional funds. That resolution would move around $13.5 million from other already completed projects that came in under budget, largely from upgrades to the Dane County Airport. Because the county has already authorized the funding in their budget, this resolution would let them simply move that funding over to the jail project. County Executive Joe Parisi says that this would create an easy path forward. So it's not like looking at a project and saying, we're not going to do this. We're going to move it over to the jail instead. Um, This is um, borrowing that's previously been approved because, you know, borrowing has to be approved and set aside. Um, But then sometimes, you know, sometimes projects come in over budget, sometimes they come in under. And there were a number that came in under. And that's where these are funds are from. The resolution to move funding to the Dane County Jail heads to a joint committee meeting in about two weeks on April 10th. Board President Patrick Miles says that, if passed in committee, the resolution would head to the full board for a final vote on April 20th. As a budget amendment, it would need a two-thirds majority to pass. If passed by the board, Executive Parisi says that bids for contractors to actually construct the jail should be back to the county by the end of summer, and construction of the jail can finally begin. While the final funding for the new Dane County Jail may finally be in reach, the county continues to spend around $100,000 every month to hold jail residents in other county jails. Last fall, Sheriff Barrett abruptly closed a portion of the Dane County Jail and began to send jail residents to other county jails across the state. Barrett says that this is a direct result of continuing to operate the current Dane County Jail. So the uh, average daily is anywhere from 45 to 55, um, where we settle on an average of around 48 to 50 uh, daily that are being housed in other locations for safety purposes, uh, but also for uh, to make sure uh, that uh, they're in safer uh, facilities uh, that are more uh, properly staffed. That was done without the explicit consent of the Dane County Board and without an official contract with the counties they sent residents to. Fearing of what might happen if something happened to a Dane County jail resident in the care of another county jail, the board officially authorized a contract with Iowa, Rock, and Oneida County jails earlier this month. Currently, there are 49 Dane County jail residents being housed outside of Dane County, which the sheriff's office says is about average. The county pays those outside jails $60 per day per resident to be housed in other county jails.
That's about $3,000 every day to house residents in what Barrett says are safer conditions. That $3,000 a day adds up to about $100,000 every month. The county has budgeted around $1.3 million to house jail residents out of county for 2023. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Over 30 people gathered in the North Hearing Room of the Capitol today to advocate for justice for incarcerated women in an event called the Wisconsin Day of Empathy. The legislation they propose is called the Dignity Act, and it will go before the Joint Finance Committee today. WORT reporter Abigail Levin says more. I thought you looked surprised when they said that the woman had traveled. That's Aldira Adape speaking today at a day of legislative action, advocating for reforms to restore dignity for women and girls who are incarcerated. It's part of an event organized by the Wisconsin Black Legislative Caucus and a variety of prison justice groups, including Free and Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, or EXPO. They called it a day of empathy. Aldape spoke this morning on a panel educating attendees on several key proposals. One of these proposals was to ban the practice of shackling pregnant women who are incarcerated. That's one of the key goals of what advocates are calling the Dignity Act. And they're hoping these reforms make it into ongoing budget hearings as lawmakers buckle down for work on the next two-year state budget. The Legislators' Budget Rating Committee began their briefings with state agencies this week. Today, the committee was briefed by the Department of Corrections. Senator Howard Markline and Representative Mark Bourne, two Republican co-chairs of the Legislative Committee, held a brief press conference this morning in advance of hearings. Bourne says Republicans are working on a new budget because they do not support the spending increases that Governor Tony Evers proposed in his budget. The Wisconsin Policy Forum called it the largest imbalance of any budget on record. So certainly we're going to have to scrap that budget, uh, start from base. In his budget proposal, Evers has demanded raises for corrections officers, prosecutors, and public defenders. He's also suggested that he might veto a budget that didn't include these pay increases. Evers also proposed funding towards treatment of pregnant and postpartum people in prisons. And prison justice advocates continued their push for more reforms to the state's correction system during today's Day of Empathy, a day of education and legislative lobbying. Peggy West Schroeder is the executive director of FREE, a nonprofit organization focused on the unique issues of women who have experienced incarceration. She says that while shackling pregnant women is unusual in state prisons, the proposed bill would provide some protections to prevent bringing back the practice. A bill announced earlier this month would ban the practice of shackling incarcerated women while giving birth. West Schroeder says they're giving light to the proposal during budget hearings. Another key issue for prison justice organizers, doulas, to assist pregnant incarcerated women before, during, and after their pregnancy. West Schroeder says being incarcerated and pregnant is isolating. Right now, pregnant women in the state of Wisconsin give birth alone. They don't have anyone there with them. Many, many times their families don't know that they're there giving birth. Under the proposal, doulas would provide post-birth care after mothers are separated from their baby. In Wisconsin, women have only 24 hours with their newborn in prison before they're taken away. Their proposal also changes several expungement laws. That is, laws allowing erasure of criminal records. If passed, it would increase the number of offenses that are eligible for expungement and create clear standards for what it means to complete a sentence. Senator Lena Taylor, a Democrat from Milwaukee, stressed the importance of emphasizing the issue to legislators on the panel today. And often the people who are impacted the most are the people that people say, well, this is what we gonna do for you. They don't get to be at the table to say, this is what is needed for us. 
So it is important for community to hear those voices, to uplift those voices, to push those voices forward so that we can educate others. Senator Taylor, joined by Madison Representative Lisa Subek, announced proposals supporting pregnant people earlier this month on International Women's Day. Those lawmakers tell WORT that they haven't submitted the proposals to the legislator yet. First, they're hoping the Joint Finance Committee seriously considers similar policies included in Governor Evers' budget proposal. They say they're getting some bipartisan support. But it's likely the Budget Writing Committee strips out those reforms as part of a larger vision intended to remove policy from the budget process. If a Republican rewrite fails to include these proposals, Senator Taylor and Representative Subek plan to introduce bills to prevent shackling, create a doula program, and create other policies to support pregnant people who are incarcerated. In 2017, those two lawmakers introduced a proposal to prevent shackling of incarcerated pregnant people after a former inmate in a Milwaukee County jail sued the county after being shackled while she gave birth. While that proposal received some bipartisan support, it failed to pass. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. The 2023 spring election is just one week away, and tonight we head to our final Alder District in a series of conversations with candidates running for the Madison City Council. District 15 sits on the east side around Lake Monona. Brad Hinkfis is one of the candidates looking to represent the district and spoke with WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout about why he's running in next week's election. The spring general election is just about a week away, and this year there are 14 alder districts appearing on the ballot. One of those districts is District 15 on the east side of Madison, containing Oberk Park and the Schenck Atwood neighborhood. One of the candidates running in that district is Brad Hinkfuss, who joins me now by phone. Brad, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So just to, just to sort of start things out, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Who are you? So I am a longtime Eastside resident. I've lived here for over 20 years. I'm someone who's been super active in the neighborhood for all of that time. My days are kind of split between working in the nonprofit world during the day where I've worked um, almost exclusively with affordable housing and shelter services for the homeless. And in the weekends and nights, I've been very involved in um, neighbor, neighborhood organization, particularly in the north end of the district but lots of different projects and things that I've been involved with. I really got a passion, really got a passion for that sort of work. And now, Brad, why did you decide to run for District 15 Alder? You know, it starts quite simply with how much I love the neighborhood. It's, you really have a sense of a place being home. You care about your home. I care about this neighborhood. There's so much that good that has happened in my life, my family's life here. And for me, being involved in that is an integral part of my, my, just my everyday life. As I said, I've been involved for a very long time. I see this as kind of a natural growth with the kind of things that I've been involved in for all that time. Um, I know so many of the issues. I've worked on so many projects. I know so many people. It's, a, it's kind of a form of giving back for me. And um, I really feel ready. Now is a good time for me. And we're, we're facing some issues at the city and at the district that I think are really tailored to my experience and my expertise. So that, that runs into it as well. And now taking a look at the city of Madison here, as a whole, what would you say are the most pressing issues facing the city that you would want to address as Alder? Well, I think that the one that I hear most clearly when I'm knocking on doors and talking with people in the district is just the overall cost of living. And that's, it's general, but it telegraphed through to all sorts of other things. I mean, the cost of living is, we hear about it mostly in the cost of housing, but it's also the cost of taxes, the cost of 
all sorts of services as well as just general inflation. And a lot of people feel like they're being priced out of their ability to live here anymore. They don't feel like they can afford their taxes. If they don't already live here, they don't feel like they can afford to ever move here or they they feel like the rent is getting out of control. So it's like we almost have a, a population shift and there's this um, anxiety out there by people that I think is in part well-founded. There's, there's really a, that's a, a, the main issue that I, I think is most in many people's minds. And now diving into a few specific issues here, you did mention housing there, so let's start with that. What sort of what sort of key initiatives would you like to see here in Madison to bring more affordable housing to the city? Well, we need to figure out, first of all, how to, how to get more housing. So affordability has a lot to do with what's available. We just simply need a lot more housing. We've got terrific neighborhoods. We've got a terrific city. A lot of people want to move here. So a lot of this pressure, a lot of this this expense is coming because there are so many people who want the limited amount of housing here. We need to produce more housing. And then housing really need to take different forms. And this is where I think my experience and my, um, my perspective on it is really valuable. We don't just need more housing. We need more housing that's available to people at all different income levels. The, the, the rental market and the housing market is segmented. You make a certain amount of money, you're only going to be able to afford things that are within a certain price range. We really need to be delivering on things in all those different price ranges so that people truly have options that are available to them. Producing a whole bunch of super expensive stuff doesn't help anyone who's of more modest means. So we need to be really um, intelligent and guided in how we, we bring housing into the market to make sure that it is not just the expensive stuff that's being built. And now another major issue facing the city at the moment is public transit. Now, bus rapid transit is set to take off next year here, and network redesign set to take off later this year. How, how do you feel about those projects? Yeah, I think they're, they're, they're a step in the right direction. People naturally have some anxiety about it because it's change, and we're always nervous about things that are change. And some of the, the details that we've heard give people, there, some of that, that anxiety is well-placed. I think that there are there are some routes that are not going to come as close to some people's homes. There's going to, they may have to walk a little further. They're not sure what it's, it's all going to look like, but it's, it's all about trade-offs. And there's definitely a need for change in the system. The existing system just doesn't work well enough. It doesn't work fast enough. It, it, be, it becomes a barrier to people using it, the length of time it takes to cross from, you know, one part of the city to another. And in attempting to solve that, one of the trade-offs is that we don't have as much penetration of the the system into the neighborhoods. And, and that's, that's causing some anxiety. But I also think that when people start to experience some of the pluses of it, like the frequency and the speed of travel, hopefully we'll offset that. Um, we're going to have to find our way through. And it's just going to, some of it we won't learn and we're going to have to adjust as we go. But I do think it's a step in the right direction. It is, it is the first big step that we've taken in change in a very, very long time. And now I want to take a look at your specific district here, Brad, District 15. What are a few issues facing your specific district here? What have you heard from potential constituents? A lot of people have very serious environmental concerns, and I think they're well-placed. I think there's a number that are unique to 15 or that are more extreme in in District 15, water being one of them. People have heard all about PFAS. Well, one of the, the main vectors of PFAS is in Starkweather Creek, which flows right through the middle of District 15 and into the lake. And the lake, of course, turns a nasty putrid green, and we have health advisories every summer. So we've got a beautiful lake. 
that people are afraid to go into. And then we've also got as a, as a third step, we've got groundwater and we've got some contamination, some toxic plumes that are making their way towards our aquifers. And it's likely that we'll soon have to be treating, remediating that water that we draw up from, from underground for our drinking water. So we've got real water issues front and center before us. And there, there's things that really need action. And before we wrap up here, Brad, do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with us here? Um, one other issue in terms of what's facing 15 that a lot of people have been talking with me about is the F-35 fighter jets. This has an outsized impact on District 15 and the east side in general. We're going to be hearing an impact by that in ways that much of the rest of the city is not going to be. Um, there are people I've talked to that are afraid they're just going to have to move. They're, they're quite terrified at what this is going to feel like, just the kind of the, the visceral reaction some people have to that noise, the fact that it's military, all the implications, it's PTSD. Um, it's another really serious issue for the east side and District 15 in particular. I've been talking with Brad Hinkfuss, who is running in next week's election for District 15 Alder. Now, that election will be taking place on April 4th. Brad, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. You're welcome. Thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. The spring election is just one week from today. Continuing her story from last week about confusing election boundaries, WORT reporter Jessica Lindahl reached out to Barry Burden. He's a political science professor at UW-Madison and director of its election research center. Earlier this afternoon, Burden spoke about shifting political boundaries, expected voter turnout, and the types of races on the ballot. Following last week's stories on ballots and election boundaries, I am following up with Professor Barry Burden, political science professor at the UW-Madison, where he researches topics in public opinion, representation, and the U.S. Congress. More recently, he studied election administration and voter participation and currently serves as the director of the Elections Research Center. I have a caller who is confused about what is on their ballot. Although they live in the city of Madison, their ballot has them voting for candidates for the Middleton School Board. Can you explain why this differs for some voters? Yeah, I think the spring elections are surprising in a lot of ways to voters. Some voters are surprised that there are elections. Well, we've just come off a round of big elections in November. Uh, to turn around after the holiday season and start with another round in February, which we call a spring primary, and then April, which is called the spring general election, is a bit of a surprise. But so are the things that are on the ballot, which are often ultra-local offices for school board or municipal positions or other kinds of things. And it can be confusing because school districts in particular don't always line up with municipal boundaries or county boundaries. And that's different from a lot of other states where the school district lines are the same as the county lines. So you know exactly as a voter which one of those things you belong in. Um, but in Wisconsin, school districts in particular are kind of messy in their boundaries and will overlap across different cities, towns, and villages. So it's possible to be 
in the Madison School District and to be able to vote for school board members, even if you don't live in the city of Madison proper. I kind of talked with Scott McDonald last week and he kind of gave me the same answer. He also talked a little bit about annexation when a city incorporates new properties into its city limits. Can you talk about how annexation affects voting over time? Yes, there are two kinds of municipalities in the state that are incorporated. Those are cities and villages. The rest of the state would be in towns, which are not incorporated. And towns tend to be gobbled up over time as cities and villages grow and they annex additional land. So a person who lived in a town at one point might find that they're in a city when the next election rolls around because their community has been annexed. Uh, The town of Madison is being absorbed into the city of Madison. That's a really prominent example here. But it can be confusing. Uh, Even though a person has not moved, they end up with (laughs) being in a different kind of community because of the growth of cities in particular. Looking more generally into the spring election, it's one week away, and on the ballot are many more local candidates and referenda. And those spring elections typically have lower turnout than the fall elections. But also on the ballot, there's a contentious race for state Supreme Court. Uh, What kind of voter turnout do you think we might see next Tuesday? Well, turnout will certainly be lower than it was in the high-profile November elections when there was a governor's race and a Senate race that were getting so much attention. But I do think turnout is going to be higher than is typically seen in a April statewide election. And it's really the Supreme Court race that is driving interest. This is the most expensive Supreme Court race that has ever taken place in Wisconsin or any other state. It's been high-profile, lots of groups getting into the mix candidates are very different from one another and have really gotten the attention of voters. Uh, There are a couple of issues, abortion and redistricting in particular, that are really driving voters' interest in this race. So I think that's going to pull out many more people to participate than we would normally see in an April election. That was true in the February primary as well, which I think set a record for voter participation in a nonpartisan February primary. Uh, But there are plenty of other things on the ballot in Madison. There's a mayoral race. City council seats are up. Uh, There's at least one contested school board seat. And depending on your community, there may be other local things. There are also ballot issues and referendums. There's one special election in Wisconsin's 8th Senate District in southeastern Wisconsin that could determine whether there's a two-thirds Republican majority in the state Senate. Why is that an important race to watch? I think it's, that race is of interest for a few reasons. One is it's kind of a barometer of the direction of state politics. The district is in the northwest suburbs outside Milwaukee and has been held by Republicans, and it's a part of the state where Republicans do well. For many years, but it has been trending in the Democrats' direction pretty quickly. And that sets up the possibility that a Democrat could win this race if everything falls in her direction. Or at least it's a sign as to whether Democrats can be competitive in those parts of the state. So I think just as a bellwether, it has some value. Uh, but it also does affect whether Republicans end up with a two-thirds majority in the state Senate. They have 21 seats there now out of 33 seats. If Dan Canodal's victorious, they would have 22. Uh, The main effect of that would be to give them the power to do impeachments of sitting officials, including judges. And Dan Canodal has suggested he's interested in that and might even be interested in pursuing impeachment of Janet Protasiewicz, who's currently a Milwaukee County judge running for Supreme Court. So the state legislature and the governor have not done much real lawmaking over the last four years because they disagree about so much. But this is one area where the state legislature could 
go off on its own without involving the governor's office at all. And then what other races do you have your eye on for next Tuesday? Yeah, in in Madison, there's a mayoral race where our uh, sitting incumbent mayor, Satya Rhodes-Conway, is running for re-election against Gloria Reyes. Uh, That one's gotten attention and has been fairly high spending as far as mayoral races around Wisconsin go. Uh, I think it's gotten the city talking about things like policing and transportation and housing in particular, which is a top issue. There are also a number of really interesting contested city council races. There are going to be a lot of new city council members elected in Madison this year because of new districts and some members stepping aside. So I think at the at, in your community, whether it's Madison or uh, one of the other municipalities in the area, there are really interesting races, and it's worth having a look at that ballot ahead of time at myvote.wi.gov to see what's there and, and check out the candidates and the issues that will be on the ballot. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Professor Burden. The Spring Nonpartisan is one week from today, next Tuesday, April 4th. Early in-person voting is open until Sunday, April 2nd. If you're voting early and need to register or update your name or address, you can do so at your early voting site until this Friday. And you can register at the polls on Election Day. To preview your ballot or check your polling place for early voting or for Election Day, go online to My Vote Wisconsin. If you have questions about your ballot, reach out to your local clerk. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jessica Lindahl. Every Tuesday, we check in with the Cardinal Daily Cardinal for the latest news from the UW-Madison campus. This week on the Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Afonso spoke with Cormac La Liberté about UW-Madison's newest celebrity, the TikTok star Butterdog. to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso, joined today by news writer Cormac LaLiberté to talk about a campus social media celebrity, the Butter Dog. Can you explain what your story is about and why you wanted to write about it? Yeah, for sure. So I saw on social media a video that a lot of people have probably seen that went viral maybe two months ago now of this guy who is eating a very large quantity of mostly raw meat and sticks of butter and raw testicle and other absurd food items like that strange meat carnivorous diet type deal and i was like who is this guy as you do and i was looking at his social media stuff and i came across some things to the effect that he goes here to this school and rows for the badger men's rowing team and so i immediately was like well in that case like this guy is going viral. Like he's like, everybody knows who he is right now. I would love to talk to him for the paper. Um, and like, just like find out more about him because I thought that his thing was so strange and so fascinating. So I DM'd him on Instagram and he got back to me immediately and sent me a voice memo that was like, yeah, we can meet. And I was like, okay, awesome. So we did. And yeah, I was able to pick his brain a little bit and it was really, really strange, really interesting. Can you tell us a little more about Turco and what it was like to sit down and learn about his lifestyle? Yeah, so he brought a steak in a Tupperware with a whole stick of butter, and he ate that while we talked. Um, so it was very much a, a glimpse into his his lifestyle, I guess you could say. But he was very um, surprisingly down-to-earth, I would say, in that I was expecting him to be putting on a little bit of a character because his social media presence is so absurd. But he was very willing to talk very frankly about his diet and about his experience with, like, 
blowing up on TikTok and like about how people like have accused him of it being fake or like the way that people have reacted and like receiving like, you know, being made fun of online and and being recognized in public and things like that. Um, it was really interesting to talk to him about that. And then the actual content of his, his thing, I guess, his actual diet and the things that made him famous, I guess you could say. That was a trip to talk to him about that because he really, did, I mean, you know, he has... It's hard for me to argue with the things that he said. They it made him feel better to start doing this diet. I just can't understand how. What did he say inspired or motivated his drastic change in diet? He just told me that he felt like he uh, he told me that he never thought that much about like what he was eating and like it wasn't a big and he had always been an athlete, but like for some reason diet just had never been a huge part of his like what he focused on. And then he he told me that he just like was feeling like his current diet was not what he wanted it to be or he wasn't feeling as good as he wanted to be. And so he he was just like, I decided I wanted to make a drastic change and I found some carnivore stuff online and I just, I just decided I was only gonna eat meat. And so like when he started, like now he eats some other stuff like fruit, but when he started it was strict, like he would only eat meat and animal products. Um, and he, he just told, he, he was like, yeah, I'm just that type of guy to commit to something like that. And I was like, wow, like, and he's stuck to it for a year now. What struck you the most when you learned more about his daily diet? It's not that I didn't believe that it was real, but it was very interesting to talk to him about the things that he eats in just a really like matter of fact type way and like realize like, yeah, this is this guy's daily lifestyle. Like this guy was eating like this for six months before he even made a TikTok account. Like he, this is the real, this is the way this guy lives. And it was interesting to be able to like talk to him about it the same way that like, you know, I would tell him like last night for dinner, I made chickpea curry, you know, but like he was telling me like he, he said for breakfast this morning, I had two cheeseburgers, some raw liver and like um, a stick of butter or something like that. And I was just like, wow, like y you did. I believe you. Like I, I'm certain that you did. And that's so interesting that you're just saying this to me. There was a point in the interview where he flipped it and asked me how much meat I eat. And I, I was like, I, I said, I think I said a normal amount, <laughs> but he, yeah, I don't know. It was very interesting. It was like, yeah, this is the real deal. This is this guy's lifestyle and this is how he eats and how he lives. Like I, it's incredible. <laughs> how does Turco's TikTok account documenting what he eats relate to social media virality and what makes something go viral? Yeah, he actually, we kind of touched on this in our interview because I asked him like, does it influence the fact that you're now maintaining this social media presence? Like, does that influence the food you eat because you want like to get certain reactions or like to, you know, to go viral or to get attention online? Obviously, like if that's your game and he, you know, has been generating a lot of engagement, I'm sure he's he's got sponsorship deals and stuff. So he's like, you know, it's important that he's generating these like these clicks and whatnot. So we were talking about how like, yes, it has informed what he eats a little bit. Like there are certain things that he eats that he told me like he he discovered while he was doing TikTok and like they got big reactions and like that was that's part of the reason he continues to do it. But also like that he, again, like I said, was eating this way for six months before TikTok. So like there definitely is an aspect of like, of um, having to generate engagement. But like, the, it, again, like I said, he was the real deal. Like he really eats that way. And like when it comes to just the concept of like going viral on social media. He was also, you know, he told me that like he gets recognized every time he leaves his house now. Like he says almost every time he goes anywhere and like because like you can just be a regular person and like you're and it's, you know, so much different than celebrity and and like fame were in previous like historical eras. Like 
you can just be a regular guy and you just take a video of yourself cooking a steak in a sink with hot water and then like suddenly people are stopping you on the street you know like it was very interesting it's just that can happen in an instant to somebody who just like you know lives in the same city i do and just is a regular guy in some ways in some ways certainly not Turco was an athlete for UW Madison. Did he talk on how this related to his dietary choices or pressures athletes may face? Yeah. Well, he he told us his um his times and like stuff like that and he like improved significantly with his meat diet. I like I don't know, I can't I guess I have to credit it with that. Um I mean, obviously there could be a million other factors, but like apparently it, it seemed to be working for him. And yeah, he did he was talking about how as an athlete like um, he couldn't maintain the strictly carnivorous thing. Like, he couldn't just eat meat because, like, he was describing the amount of energy you burn and calories and whatever. And, like, it's necessary for him to eat, like, honey and fruits is the things that I think he he said. Honey, fruits, obviously butter. Um, the non-animal products, I think that was... It. Oh, syrup. He, he eats syrup. And there may have been another non-animal product. Um, maybe some vegetables, but I'm pretty sure that he said no vegetables. Yeah, he, he, he did say that he, um, like, a main one of the main focuses of this diet is, like, performance in his sport. And, like, it was helpful for that. He also said that he thinks that... I don't know, I asked him if he feels that anybody on the rowing team has, like, adopted his diet or anything. And he said, like, he said he tries really hard not to push it on people and, like, not to, like, evangelize about it. Um, but he said that I don't think anybody's got gotten on board quite as much as he is, but he thinks that he has influenced people to eat more meat and, like, maybe be a little bit more adventurous with their, their diets. Is there anything else you'd like to share or think listeners should know about this? I don't know. I feel like um, it's definitely, I don't know, it's almost a lesson in, like, how many different ways you can live. You know what I mean? Like, this guy eats a diet that I think most people are, like, really shocked by. He Like, that's a part of the reason that he is, like, the platform that he does know is it's, it is shock value and it's, like... It is like, wow, like, how is this guy doing this? And it does feel fake almost, like, instinctively. But then, like, getting to talk to him, it's like, no, this is, this is, like, what he does. Like, he does live this way. He does eat this, like, diet. Like, yeah, he does have this crazy personality on social media. And he does have this, like, character sort of that he does on TikTok. But he also is a personal finance major. You know what I mean? He also is just, like, a regular guy who just eats, like, he, he was, like, telling me that he's cut down to only about two pounds of ground beef a day. For, like, I feel like that sums it up to a degree that I, I can't, like, I can't say better than that. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's it's a lesson in, in like, I don't know, there are vegans and then there's that guy and they both coexist in the same the same city. It's, it's yeah, it's funny. It was a surreal experience seeing those videos and then finding out that he lived in Madison and having to face the idea that, like, like I said, he's a real guy. And then, you know, I, I talked to him and he's a super nice guy. Thank you so much, Cormac. Yeah, thank on. you for having me. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Animal rehabilitation is focused on mending and preparing animals to be returned to the wild. But that becomes difficult when dealing with baby animals who are more likely to latch on to human behaviors and end up relying on people to meet their basic needs. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explains why that's so dangerous and the steps rehabilitators take to ensure that even baby animals can thrive after a stay at the Animal Rehab Center. Wild, wild. 
Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about hatchling great horned owls and a little bit more specifically talking about the human aspect of rehabilitation and the risk of imprinting in birds and the importance of having a foster parent or a surrogate parent or wild fostering those animals back into the environment. So today the topic is great horned owl babies because we have two little hatchlings that are in our rehabilitation center right now. One of which was a young hatchling that only came to us just under 500 grams of body weight, which is really, really tiny. And that bird in particular had fallen from its nest and fractured a leg. So it will be in care for quite a bit longer because it has medical management that's required. And the other bird was admitted more in the fledgling stage, meaning that they're kind of branching from their nest. So a little bit older than the first one, but it was found with, with unfortunately blood just all over its feathers, the poor thing. And ironically, not really any other major wounds, but we figured that the bird had bled, um, continuously for a long period of time, which is very abnormal. And we did find that the bird's blood values were very, very, very low, meaning that it was anemic. And we did suspect, and based on what the blood work looked like, we suspected it has rodenticide, which it has been thriving in the last couple of days from treatment with. But that means that it was somehow fed probably by its parents a mouse that might have had a bait in it or a rat with bait in it unfortunately poisoning is something we see very commonly in rehabilitation and it is terrible because it causes a problem with the clotting factor in the blood and it doesn't allow for that bird to clot very well which means we supplement with something called vitamin k which helps with the clotting factor when a wound or something happens that produces you know a spot where blood is going to try to clot together in a space to stop the bleeding. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen, and so the bleeding just continues. So we have these two birds that are just, you know, newborns almost. They're a little bit older than newborns, but both are in their critical period of development. And the critical period is something we don't really talk about too much, but is highly, highly important in our field. And critical period is actually something defined within the developmental biology realm. And it's defined technically as the maturational stage in the lifespan of an organism during which the nervous system is especially sensitive to certain environmental stimuli. And so what's really important there is that these birds are not with their parents, but they are now in rehabilitation with humans taking care of them. And during the critical period, imprinting is something that's a very high risk, but it's also crucial to their immediate and long-term survival. So the Wildlife Center of Virginia has a really great article on this, if anyone ever checks out their website, which is wildlifecenter.org. And they have an entire article about imprinting, what it is, and what happens if birds can imprint on humans. So just going to take a few facets from that article because it's a really, really good one. And we love to share between wildlife rehab centers when these types of materials come out, especially for public education. So imprinting allows baby birds to understand their appropriate behaviors and the vocalizations that are necessary for their species. So in the case of owls, they need to know how to hoot appropriately so that they can find mates later in their life. But then also it allows them to be able to hear each other. And hearing is hugely important for owls because they hoot in territorial response 
houses when they are keeping the nest and predators safe away from their babies, especially the male. The male is the one that does more of the territorial responses for great horned owls. And I'm talking about just this specific species for this segment. But so imprinting on the parents visually and auditorily, which is super important for them, if they were to accidentally imprint on humans during the critical period of their life when they're forming those neurons in the brain, they may think that they're a human. They see a human taking care of them, which means that they believe that they might be a human, something that's very common in birds if you don't do it right. And so that's why rehabilitation is so important. And it's important that rehabilitators know exactly what they're doing when they're working with an owl or a bird that is at that age of life. So you cannot reverse it. And because of this, if the birds are imprinted, they have a difficult time communicating with other birds of their own species, meaning that they don't vocalize right, they might not stand right or posture right. So for owls, you know, they're clacking their beaks back and forth and they're swaying back and forth and that's normal. And if they don't do that, then they are not providing that type of experience if they were to even be able to breed future in the future, then they wouldn't be showing their young the appropriate behaviors that are needed. And it's typically not accepted by other birds of their same species. So unfortunately, if a bird does imprint on humans, it is not releasable. So we are doing everything we absolutely can to avoid imprinting risk. And that means being in a very quiet environment with only uh, sounds of nature around them. So we use sound machines and we do not talk at all around birds at that age. When we tweezer feed them because their parents would be tweezer feeding in the nest, we use an owl puppet to try to minimize our, our figure, meaning that we block ourselves with a puppet while feeding. We also camouflage ourselves by wearing a camouflaged hat, obscuring our figure and our faces. And we are continuing to wear face masks. That way they can't really see some other human features. So all of those put together with also minimized handling, not entering a room. We actually keep the room locked and do staff only feedings for a little while uh, until they're past that critical period. All of that can really help us reduce the risk of imprinting. And we're also in the process of looking for anybody in Wisconsin that are rehabilitators that have a surrogate parent. So an adult owl that cannot be released that might be able to foster these little ones until they are able to be returned to the wild. So the surrogate is actually even better than people. If we have a bird that is in captivity for the rest of its life, sometimes unfortunately they came in because they were also imprinted themselves or they have an injury that precludes them from being released. Occasionally, depending on species, they can actually become really good parents to babies that aren't their own. And that's something we do when we wild foster birds, putting them in the environment with a parent that's not their own in a different nest if they were healthy and found on the ground and unable to be returned themselves to their first original nest. So all of that is our like just one of the biggest procedures at this time of year between February, March, April, when we start to get baby owls that are down on the ground and we have to feed them and manage their medical care in rehabilitation because they're very at high risk at that age. So we have these two wonderful birds. They are thriving in rehabilitation. We're doing our best not to have them imprint on us, absolutely, and uh, doing everything we can to get them back to the wild. So thanks for listening today here on WORT. This has been a segment talking about great horned owls and the risk of imprinting. If you have any questions about animals, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. Thank you. 
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson. Your reporters were Abigail Evans and Jessica Lindahl. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Madeline Alfonso, and the editorial staff at The Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wuggyhout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe wherever you keep up with your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrique Chopadio. Good night.